Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Autumn Retreat. Our theme this year is American Exceptionalism in the 21st Century. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Michael W. McConnell, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Richard and Francis Mallory Professor and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at the Stanford Law School. The title of his talk is Legal Origins of American Exceptionalism. It was recorded on October 17, 2016. On a single day in February, five unarmed young men were shot and killed by uniformed officers in the city of Boston, Massachusetts. Naturally, the community was in an uproar. You may have read about it. There were massive public protests. Political leaders and agitators, some of them, uh, exploited these killings. They called them a massacre, and they demanded systemic change. Uh, They distributed selective accounts and especially pictures presenting the officers in the worst possible light. No matter what the actual facts may have been, these officers were portrayed as oppressors. They, they should be prosecuted, convicted, punished. Rebellion was in the air. And indeed, the eight officers involved in the shootings were prosecuted. And they might well have been convicted and punished to mollify public opinion, except for the commitment of one young lawyer Uh, to the rule of law. His name was John Adams. Now, naturally, Adams assumed that defending the perpetrators of the Boston Massacre would be the end of his political career, but defend them he did. He summoned witnesses before the jury uh, to develop the actual facts of what really had happened. And then, in a summation that is still one of the great documents of the law in the United States, Adams quoted to the jury the law pertaining to the case. He told them that if the British soldiers had, quote, reason to believe that they were in danger of attack, that jury didn't have to agree that that was true, just that the officers had reason to believe, then the killing, the shooting was, quote, justifiable, or at least excusable. Uh, More importantly, Adams spoke to the jury about the importance of following the law, even at a time of great uh, emotion. Uh, He told them that we were engaged in the struggle for liberty and property, uh, but that if we cut up the law, those were his words, cut up the law, the rest is of very little value. Rules of law, he said, should be universally known whatever effect they may have on politics. Now, even more remarkable than that John Adams stepped up to this task of legal representation was that the jury agreed with him. Six of the eight defendants were acquitted outright, and two of them, the ones who were most directly responsible for firing into the crowd, were convicted on reduced charges and given a slap on the wrist. Well, it wasn't really 
a slap on the wrist. They were branded on the thumb. For those days, a pretty uh, 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 mild uh, punishment. Uh, Now, the city of Boston did not descend into riots in response to this verdict. Quite the contrary. The Boston Massacre and the acquittal of the soldiers became a point of pride and one of the hallmarks of the American Revolution. For John Adams had made a point that resonated with his countrymen, a revolution that was found to vindicate the legal rights of American colonists must uphold the legal rights of all. Fidelity to law is essential, whatever effect it may have on politics. Now, historians tell us that the American Revolution was amazingly law-abiding, especially in contrast uh, to the Democratic Revolution that was going on at roughly the same period of time across the Atlantic in the streets of Paris. In Paris, there were no John Adamses, or if there were, no one was listening to them. Instead, they were guillotines, confiscations of property, political trials, mob vengeance, and lots and lots of blood. The American Revolution was so different. Did you know that the Tea Partiers, when they were attacking those vessels, scrupulously refrained from 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 any uh, taking of the other private property other than the tea, uh, which was in the ships. In fact, when one small item belonging to a captain was broken, uh, they paid to replace it. And when one member of the Tea Party uh, chose to take personal advantage of the occasion and stole some of the tea. They they were throwing it in the harbor, right? But he thought, well, I'm going to put some of it in my pocket and take it home. Uh, He was apprehended and severely punished. So important to them was uh, that they follow, that they obey the law and respect the rights of property that this carried through even in what has got to be one of the most famous acts of rebellion uh, uh, in history. And this was was intentional and deeply self-conscious. Listen to the words of Thomas Paine and uh, and Common Sense. This is the most widely read pamphlet of the American Revolution. Uh, What Paine wrote is, he said, where, says some, is the king of America? I tell you, friend, that in America, the law is king. For as in absolute governments, the king is law, so in free countries, the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. But what does this mean? What is the rule of law? Lots of definitions, but I think the core comes down to two propositions. One is that we govern ourselves through known, settled, understandable rules that apply to everyone. Second is that these rules are applied equally and dispassionately through fair processes and procedures. 
Now, this is not a libertarian notion. We could have small government. We can have big government. This is a question of how government operates. Uh, and what are the benefits of this rule of law? Uh, not only does it produce a more just society, but also a more prosperous one. Uh, in a society observing the rule of law, people have the ability to plan and to invest for the future. Law, just as much as economics and maybe even more, is the bedrock of prosperity and thus the bedrock of American exceptionalism. And I want to tell you that this adherence to the rule of law is still strong in America. Uh, we heard in the last talk about declining American exceptionalism, and there may have been some decline here as well, but that does not mean we should be you know, getting out the sackcloth and ashes and saying that all is lost. Right? I still believe that for the most part, American life is governed this way. For the most part, the law does govern. It is applied reasonably dispassionately and through reasonably fair uh, uh, processes. But we certainly uh, should not uh, take this for granted. Uh, there are problems. So what are the, the threats to the rule of law? Uh, there are lots. I don't, have a comp I don't have a comprehensive list. Any, probably a lot of you in the audience will have uh, uh, other thoughts and suggestions and fears and worries as well. Uh, but I want to mention four and concentrate especially on one. Uh, but the first is politicized law enforcement, which really is an acid that undermines the idea of the rule of law. Uh, we see this, uh, we see it a lot at the state level in particular. I think of the John Doe investigations that went on in Wisconsin, a rather obvious uh, and largely successful uh, attempt to shut down uh, political opposition, uh, Republicans and conservatives in, uh, in Wisconsin. If you haven't read about that, you should. You will be sh truly shocked. It has now been shut down by the federal courts. Or, or in Texas, how about the prosecution of Governor Rick Perry for the crime of threatening to veto legislation that he disagreed with? That's a crime, um, and yet he's hauled through the process. That has also been uh, uh, now uh, uh, dismissed. Um, I would have said that there's not a whole lot of that at the federal level. I would have said that until fairly recently, uh, but I think that the events in the Internal Revenue Service have not been given sufficient attention. This was... I think of all of the abuses over the last uh, number of years, this was the one that most goes to the heart of the rule of law uh, and to the preservation of a democratic uh, system where the Internal Revenue Service deliberately ch uh, targets particular political views uh, that are not in vogue uh, in Washington uh, at the moment and holds up their applications and, uh, uh, and imposes special requirements. Uh, now, to my surprise, you may have heard this too, 
you know, there are still a lot of people who say, oh, that was just, you know, that didn't really happen. Uh, that's just the Republicans, you know, making stuff up. Uh, but in fact, this has been established both by the Inspector General of the Department of the Treasury and also for two, two federal courts of appeals uh, have found this. This is not a, uh, a fable. Uh, let, me, let me just read you from uh, an opinion of the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Um, they said, among the most serious allegations a federal court can address are that an executive agency has targeted citizens for mistreatment based on their political views. No citizen, Republican or Democrat, socialist or libertarian, should be targeted or even have to fear being targeted on these grounds. Yet those are the grounds on which the plaintiffs allege they were mistreated by the IRS here. The allegations are substantial. Most are drawn from findings made by the Treasury Department's own Inspector General for Tax Administration. These findings include that the IRS used political criteria to round up applications for tax-exempt status filed by so-called Tea Party groups, that the IRS often took four times as long to process Tea Party applications as other applications, and that the IRS served Tea Party applicants with crushing demands for what the Inspector General called unnecessary information. And just two months ago, early August, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, in an opinion, found that these practices have not yet ceased, that they are still uh, continuing. Uh, I bet most of you did not even hear about that uh, Court of Appeals opinion. Seems to me that should have been front page news. This was one of the charges on which Richard Nixon was impeached uh, for being uh, uh, as president of the United States. So, you know, the IRS uh, gives me, you know, cause to worry that perhaps, I mean, an institution that I would have sworn was scrupulously nonpartisan a few years ago is obviously uh, uh, not. And, and I have to say also, I, I worked for the Department of Justice for a number of years and have a great deal of faith in the professionalism of the Department of Justice and the FBI. Um, but in the wake of seemingly disparate treatment of such political figures as Scooter Libby, Governor Bob McDonnell, John Corzine, David Petraeus, and dare I say it, uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, many are now wondering uh, whether the Department of Justice and the FBI also have been uh, uh, compromised. Uh, so politicized law enforcement, but there's also politicized law interpretation. Uh, this is where the courts decide cases, especially about hot-button constitutional questions, in light of their own political predilections and the movements of which they belong, rather than according to what the Constitution and the laws uh, say. I'm not going to go into tremendous detail. Those of you who have heard me at these events before, I've talked about a few of them uh, uh, in the past. Uh, this has engendered a reaction of then increasing politicization of the process by which federal judges are nominated and confirmed. This has now been going on, uh, you know, certainly since the 
unfortunate events about uh, Judge Robert Bork. Every presidential administration it has gotten more extreme. Each one is worse than the one before, uh, and uh, I. You know, I think that it is um, taking a toll. I still believe that the federal judiciary is one of the great judiciaries of the world, uh, but I think uh, we can't be too complacent about that in light of this tendency to use the power vested in the courts to accomplish what are essentially political rather than legal uh, ends. Uh, then a, a third problem is a disregard for constitutional limits, and I'm thinking especially here about the executive branch. Uh, back to the time of, of George Washington, uh, we have depended very heavily upon the idea that the executive branch and executive branch officials and executive branch lawyers will comply with the law, not because somebody's going to punish them if they don't, but because that's part of what it is to be a government official and a government lawyer, that the law has a moral weight upon executive branch officials. And there are so many respects in which there is no serious consequence when ex the executive branch steps beyond the law. Um, I fear that the self-restraint uh, has been uh, uh, weakening. We have had several instances in the last uh, few years uh, in which the General Accountability Office, which is the effectively the, 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 the watchdog of spending uh, for the federal government, has held that a federal uh, uh, spending has been illegal, including $7 billion, which was given to health insurance companies uh, that was not appropriated by Congress. That's, that, again, I bet most of you have not heard that. That should be front page news. Uh, uh, and it is by no means clear that the executive branch is going to change its practices in this respect. So I think this, um, the, the, the decline in, in uh, uh, in, the, in the idea that law should be internalized within the executive branch is a cause uh, for worry. Uh, but the last threat to the rule of law, and the one that I want to comment on in the most detail, uh, has to do with transformations in the administrative state. One of the questions last time was, well, what about agencies as opposed to just legislation? What about agencies? What are they uh, uh, up to? And I think that there has been a real shift, um, uh, even in the time since I began teaching law, a real shift uh, in the way in which the uh, executive uh, agencies, administrative agencies uh, uh, operate. And, and what, what I worry about here is, is a combination of vast perplexing and incomprehensible laws passed by Congress coupled with very broad administrative discretion as to individual cases. Uh, the result being an erosion of any idea that, got, that these cases are really governed by rules, uh, but rather by case-by-case uh, case, uh, 
arbitrariness um, with baneful effects, baneful effects on democratic accountability, on corruption and inequality, and on uh, prosperity. Let me just give an example from the financial uh, uh, regulatory sector. The, the original Banking Act of 1864, the first one we had of this sort, uh, was 29 pages long. Uh, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, one of the most important uh, acts in American history with regard to the financial sector, that was 32 pages long. Uh, the Dodd-Frank bill uh, came in at over 1,600 pages. Um, this was not the bill as to which the then Speaker of the House said, we'll have to pass it so you can find out what's in it, but she could have. Uh, very few people know what's in it, and it's almost impossible to read. Uh, uh, the Economist magazine called it uh, in, virtually incomprehensible from any perspective. Um, one example, it contains a, a, a rule called the Volcker, Volcker Rule that was proposed by our, um, our friend, many of us, uh, uh, our friend uh, Paul Volcker, in a single sentence. And his sentence was that banks insured by the government may not engage in proprietary trading. That's the Volcker Rule. Well, it's embedded in the Dodd-Frank legislation. It took them 11 pages uh, to express the one sentence. The regulations defining that one sentence, uh, the, these are proposed regulations, come in at 298 pages. And the proposed questionnaires that go out to firms in order to figure out whether they're violating this rule or not uh, contain 383 questions, 1,420 sub-questions. Um, this, uh, the proliferation of length and complexity and incomprehensibility really defeats uh, the rule of law. And, and, and our founders knew this. They tried to ward against it. Uh, James Madison, I mean, those of you who know me, I mean, there wouldn't be a McConnell talk without quoting either Madison or Hamilton, right? So here's my Madison quote for you. Uh, he said uh, in Federalist Essay number 62, one of my favorite Federalist essays, he said, it will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read are so incoherent that they cannot be understood. Uh, so in addition to being vast and incomprehensible, uh, the second feature that worries me here is a shift to case-by-case -case determinations. Now, when I studied administrative law, my professor, by the way, was Antonin Scalia uh, of, of blessed memory, uh, the administrative, if you read the Administrative Procedure Act, passed in 1947, uh, you would think that the way in which agencies operate most of the time, this is what the act is all about, is by uh, regulations and adjudications, which is to say regulations are rules, they announce rules, and adjudications are applications of those rules. This is 
a reflection of the very ideal of the rule of law, that we have rules and then we apply them dispassionately. Right? Um, but the modern trend in administrative procedure uh, is to operate instead uh, through case-by-case uh, uh, decision-making of two forms. They're, they're licenses... That's where you have to, the, the regulated party has to go to the agency and ask permission. They give all the information to the agency, and the agency looks at it and you know, decides you can do it or not. I call this mother may I regulation. Right? So instead of a rule telling you what you have to do, you go to Washington and get, you tell them what you're doing, and they say yes or no, mother may I. Uh, so there are licenses, and then there are waivers, which are which permission to do something different than what the rules uh, uh, require. Uh, the the um, uh, in, in the, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, in the first couple of years, there were one thousand two hundred and thirty-one waivers. Uh, Four hundred and fifty of those went to labor unions. Most of the others went to large corporations, including Pepsi and McDonald's. Um, other application, applicants asked for waivers and were denied. We have no idea why some are granted and some are denied. We just don't know. Uh, this is not, I submit to you, uh, the rule of law. This is the rule of men. Uh, one of the great Supreme Court justices, Robert Jackson, uh, an FDR uh, appointee, uh, uh, said, and I'd like to quote this to you because I think this is really quite um, profound. He said, uh, there is no more effective practical guarantee against arbitrary and unreasonable government than to require that the principles of law which officials would impose upon a minority must be imposed generally. Conversely, Nothing opens the door to arbitrary action so effectively as to allow those officials to pick and choose only a few to whom they will apply legislation and thus to escape the political retribution that might be visited upon them if larger numbers were affected. When you have a law that requires 1,231 exceptions in particular cases, given to politically powerful entities, that is an indication that something is awry. It means either that the general rule was very badly concocted to begin with, if you need that many exceptions, or that uh, special favors are being given, and it might mean both. So who benefits from this kind of a system? I mean, that's always a question. Things are not done randomly. Things in Washington don't just happen, right? Who benefits? Well, uh, this kind of a complex case-by-case regulatory system benefits lobbyists and lawyers to begin with. Um, According to The Economist, the leading financial industry trade association in connection with Dodd-Frank employed 5,490 people to work with the various subcommittees of Congress on the legislation. Um, They are awake. The rest of us are asleep. They know what's going on. 
Nobody else has a clue. Now, also, large firms benefit. Right? Even when regulation impose co imposes costs on the large firms, uh, they still benefit relative to uh, their smaller competitors because they are large enough to be able to have regulatory lawyers and offices and so forth, right? Uh, 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 smaller firms can. It's, thus, it's not a surprise that hospitals are merging uh, uh, in the wake of o Obamacare. That, that banks, rather than be, we have a, we had a too large to fail problem with a supposed solution that is now producing more large banks than ever, which is to say the very thing that was the problem is now worse as a result of this regulatory uh, uh, system. Um, and, and next time you see the CEO of a large corporation being patted on the back for his public spiritedness in agreeing to regulation of one sort or another, minimum wage or labor regulation or environmental greenness or whatever you have it, check your wallets. They are, not they are not being beneficent, nor should they. I'm not, I'm not criticizing, really. Uh, it's that large firms gain an advantage in the, in the, uh, uh, in the competitive world uh, by having regulations that are going to, going to impose relatively greater costs on smaller competitors than on uh, them. Other beneficiaries, well, there's the revolving door. I mean, my goodness. Uh, the way in which uh, the people uh, uh, who supposedly are public servants uh, are immediately leave uh, their their government jobs and uh, and go and work for the very industries they were regulating and vice versa and you know it it has to be that way they're the people who know what the regulations are and what the industries are about it's it's uh, it's a corrupt system. Uh, but not one in which it's, it's a product of the way we regulate. It's not a product of individual bad uh, people. And, and then, of course, people with good political connections benefit. Because when you have to go to Washington and ask Mother May I you to kiss the ring of the, uh, of the regulators, it's those who are on, known to be supporters are, of course, going to uh, get an edge over others. I, I have a, a, a friend who, he and his brother are co-owners of a, I'm going to call it a small business, although it's actually you know, a few million dollars in sales, but uh, you know, a small business in the great scheme of things. And my friend uh, likes to support libertarian candidates for office, and he makes contributions to them and does Cato Institute and so forth. We, sh we should put him on the on the uh, contact list, Tom. Uh, 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 but anyway, he told me uh, he his brother was pleading with him to stop doing that because they have so many contacts with regulators. A lot of them at the state here in California at the state level. It's not all federal, but so many meetings with regulators who have discretion to either let a, you know get in their face or not right so much discretion and his brother is convinced that those people that they're meeting with 
check opensecrets.com, find out where the contributions are going and treat them uh, accordingly. I, I have no idea if that's right, but I will say there's motive and opportunity for that to be, uh, uh, for that to be right. Um, James Madison again predicted this. He, uh, uh, he wrote also in Federalist 62, another effect of this kind of, of legislation is the unreasonable advantage it gives to the sagacious, the enterprising, and the moneyed few over the industrious and uninformed mass of the people. Every new regulation concerning commerce or rev- revenue presents a new harvest to those who watch the change and can trace its consequence. Right. Um, and this has you know, seriously deleterious effects for prosperity, for economic growth and employment. Um, uh, economist Mark Zandi a few years ago calculated, based on a statistical analysis, that the increase in political uncertainty since 2008 has reduced real GNP by close to $150 billion and lowered employment by 1.1 million jobs. Uh, and again, Madison. Here's Madison. Uh, what farmer or manufacturer will lay himself out for the encouragement given to any particular cultivation or establishment when he can have no assurance that his preparatory labors and advances will not render him a victim to an inconstant government. Right? So, you know, real economic as well, uh, economic effects, but maybe even more serious thinking about the American Republic or the effects on democratic accountability. Because instead of debates in Congress where we have some sense of what's uh, uh, happening, the real decisions are made deep in the bowels of the bureaucracy. They likely are not even going to be covered by the newspapers. It's all going to be inside baseball. We ordinary citizens are cut out of the process. Um, So... Rule of law is at the heart of American self-identity, as Thomas Paine said. It is still, I think, very strong, especially when we compare ourselves to other places around the world. But there are worrying trends that we should be alert to. What can be done about the worrying trends? This is not an easy question, I, I mean, to say the least. Uh, you know, the traditions and institutions behind the rule of law take decades to develop, but they can be destroyed, and if not an instant, at least in an administration. Uh, in order to reverse this, uh, we need a different approach to both legislation and regulation, to em- emphasize clarity, to employ simpler rules, to cabin case-by-case discretion, to bring about greater transparency. Uh, In order to do this, we need reform, various dimensions of reform. Intellectual is where I would begin. There's a lot of thought to be done about how to construct our regulatory state in a way which um, has more fidelity to the rule of law. The uh, 1947 Administrative Procedure Act is way out of date and barely even describes what we now do. 
This is why uh, the task force that I am, am uh, heading with Charles Calamiris, uh, we've been meeting and, and having scholars, a lot of young scholars in particular, uh, uh, to present ideas about how, uh, how the administrative state might be reformed in order to bring it back uh, in accord with the rule of law. Um, in addition to thinking, there's also a political dimension that there really would need to be a new commitment to the common good. Coupled, it would be nice with maybe a little bit more understanding of economics. Um, we need legislative reform. C Congress is no longer operating, really. I mean, it's a very strange institution and and, and just because the two houses are run by Republicans doesn't mean it's actually doing a very good job. Um, the, uh, and, and I also think, you know, if people worry about the rising tide of distrust of government, what a terrible thing that is. Actually, I'm kind of hopeful about the distrust of government because I think we need a new skepticism about the wisdom, motives, and capacities of bureaucratic agencies. We should not assume that they are just dispassionate experts off there promoting the public good. But in all of this, the first step is to pay attention. There's a Brazilian proverb, or at least I'm told there is a Brazilian proverb, the nation grows at night while the politicians sleep. Uh, we need to be awake. All right. uh, we're, now, we're in the midst of a presidential election. I don't, I don't know if any of you are aware of that. I, I, as for me, I just try to avert my eyes. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, it's one in which neither candidate has shown the slightest interest in the rule of law, either in what they say or and how they've conducted their own affairs. And I wonder, does that, maybe that makes this the best of times to begin the conversation about the rule of law. Because, you know, ordinary Americans, uh, and I think this is really, I think, true, ordinary Americans are asking the question, what is going wrong? What is going wrong? And... I think the first answer to that is uh, the rule of law is beginning to erode, uh, and that gives us an opportunity to, to talk. It should be the very first thing on the list. Thank you, Tom, for making it the first item on our list. For as John Adams you know, said to that jury in Boston so many years ago, he said, if we cut up the law, the rest is of very little value. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.